Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Egan. In tonight's show, how slavery built modern Britain, electioneering and propaganda in Ireland during the War of Independence, journeys to freedom after the Holocaust, investigating what happened in Leitrim during the years of the Irish Revolution, and finally, to end the show, we'll explore the unruly history of New York English and find out why C-3PO in Star Wars was originally meant to have a New York accent. Now, last week we looked at the life and legacy of the man who defeated Custer at the Battle of the Little Bighorn, and we found out that there's an awful lot more to his story, the Native American leader Sitting Bull. And if you want to listen back to that or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the story of how slavery built modern Britain. The British Empire, in sentimental myth, was more free, more just and more fair than its rivals. But this claim that the British Empire was free and that for all its flaws it promised liberty to all its subjects was never true. The British Empire was built on slavery. And this is explored in a brilliant new book, Slave Empire, How Slavery Built Modern Britain. It's published in hardback by Robinson and costs £25 sterling, so about €28. The author is Podrick X. Scanlon. And Podrick, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thanks very much for having me. So can we begin with the, the, the main thesis behind the book? Because what you show is that the story of the connections between, between Britain and slavery and even between Britain and the anti-slavery move, movement, it's, it's a more complicated story than, than the popular image. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the traditional story of, of slavery in the British Empire, if the story is told at all, which is, you know, one of the... Um, one of the kind of forces that I'm trying to write the book against, the idea to kind of deny Britain's relationship to slavery. But when the role of slavery in the building of the British Empire is a part of imperial history, it's often told as a kind of, you know, an 18th century story, right? Britain, Britain's involvement with slavery was in its 18th century empire in the Caribbean uh, and, you know, in the colonies that became the United States of America after the American Revolution. And then, uh, with the abolition of the British slave trade in 1807 and then the abolition of slavery in Britain's colonies in 1833, um, some historians have tended to treat those moments of abolition as moments of profound reversal in Britain's relationship to slavery. Uh, and what I'm trying to argue in the book is that Britain's relationship to slavery uh, helped to create the empire, its structures, um, its systems of power, its political economy, and that abolishing slavery and abolishing the slave trade couldn't undo those systems. Uh, and so Britain was able to, after abolition, profit from all of the systems of power created by mass enslavement while simultaneously denying um, its relationship to slavery. Is it the argument that slavery helped build Britain in terms of the huge uh, money that it, it, it provided, but also in terms of the attitude that it, it encouraged amongst these uh, people, even those who were anti-slavery, that a, a certain elite attitude and a view of an elite view of the world was encouraged? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a sense in which Britain's anti-slavery movement was you know, diverse and heterogeneous. But when people think about the British anti-slavery movement and its leadership, you're thinking about a relatively small coterie of people who shared very similar religious, class, 
um, and and kind of political leanings, right? So so William Wilberforce and the core of the British anti-slavery movement um, were not committed to any kind of immediate emancipation, right? There there was never, at least among the kind of elite white leadership of the anti-slavery movement, there was never a sense that the end of slavery would mean autonomy for people who had been enslaved. Uh, the presumption was always that the end of slavery would mean the beginning of a process of gradual civilization, right? A kind of civilizing mission that would teach formerly enslaved people uh, the meaning of the freedom that they had been granted. So the idea that British anti-slavery represented a break with the kind of uh, desire to control um, people of African descent in the British Empire just isn't true, right? The, the anti-slavery movement uh, offered uh, formerly enslaved people a different kind of control. Uh, and you're, you're absolutely right, right? That, that comes in part from the fact that, you know, someone like William Wilberforce had a great deal more in common with you know, his, his, his kind of slaveholding counterparts across the aisle or even on the same benches uh, in parliament than he did with enslaved people, right? There was a sense that if, if, if Britain could just replace the people who were in charge of the former slave colonies, then the civilizing mission could begin. Tell us about Mary Prince, because she's a fascinating figure and her story helps ex- explore some of these tensions and contradictions. The, the history of Mary Prince is, as far as I know, the first narrative by an enslaved person or an, an enslaved woman, rather, published um, in Britain. Um, I, I, I may be wrong about that, but it's certainly the first kind of prominent slave narrative from an enslaved woman from the British Caribbean. Um, and so right on the eve of emancipation in the British Empire, so in the at the turn of the 1830s, the Anti-Slavery Society, which was the largest um, organization devoted to the abolition of slavery in the empire, um, had a kind of sudden reversal of policy where it went from proposing that the end of slavery would happen uh, over you know, a very slow kind of gradual period of years where the status of enslaved people would change incrementally to adopting what they called an immediatist position, where what they were arguing for wasn't the kind of immediate, as I said just earlier, right, the, the, the kind of immediate creation of autonomy for formerly enslaved people, but rather a kind of immediate change in status. So right around this time, an enslaved woman uh, named Mary Prince uh, ended up in London in part because uh, she feared being re-enslaved if, if she were to return to the Caribbean. So for a long time under British law, since the Somerset decision of 1773, enslaved people in Britain um, who sued for freedom could not be returned to the colonies. So the, the Somerset decision didn't exactly make slavery illegal in Britain, but it made it impossible for slaveholders to force people to return to the Caribbean if they were going to be sold into slavery if they were enslaved. So Mary Prince ended up in, in this kind of quasi-emancipated position in London, and her story uh, really captured the imagination of the anti-slavery movement, um, in part because she herself was, um, she, she, she had not worked on a plantation, so she was not a kind of um, enslaved person who worked in the fields. Instead, she had been a domestic servant, um, and she also uh, was married uh, to a, fr- uh, a, a free person of African descent uh, from whom she was separated by enslavement, which is part of the, the kind of tragedy of her story. Um, and she also wanted to earn money in order to purchase her own emancipation. So 
Mary Prince's story, and, and you, you know, there are many copies, many editions of, of the, the history of Mary Prince available now, right? It's a, it's a really harrowing story of the, the, the violence and the degradation in, in, in inherent in enslavement in the empire. But at the same time, Mary Prince was a kind of perfect victim of mass enslavement in the sense that she was, um, um, you know, a, a, a woman, a mother, a married woman uh, who wanted to earn her freedom rather than to just kind of seize it. Um, and so the history of Mary Prince, I think, shows the tensions within the British anti-slavery movement, because it is both a kind of shocking example of what happened to enslaved people in the empire and a very, very compelling argument for, you know, the, 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 the kind of um, uh, the, the, the opprobrium that should be directed towards slave ownership. But at the same time, it represents the idea that certain kinds of enslaved people were more deserving of more autonomy, right? There was a, a, an implied scale of civilization that Mary Prince was quite far along and uh, that therefore made her a kind of more compelling uh, figure for, for, for the anti-slavery movement. And the concept of freedom then meant so much for the Victorians and it meant so much in the the decades afterwards. Uh, and it was built on uh, the fact that Britain had become the first European country to, to abolish the slave trade and, and to take such a stand against it. But as you show that so much of this was really built on, on, on kind of a mythology. Absolutely, right? There's, there's a sense in which what freedom meant was very specific, right? What, what, what enslaved people thought freedom meant was very different from what the leaders of the anti-slavery movement in Britain thought freedom meant, right? And, and you could see that even in the immediate wake of the abolition uh, of slavery, and it's particularly after the system that uh, followed slavery apprenticeship, so this system of um, quasi-coerced labor for an additional four to six years for people who had been enslaved, when when the apprenticeship system collapsed um, in 1838, freed people began to leave the plantations immediately. Right? They, they they had no sense, and why would they? Of course, they you know they had nothing but um, anger and, and 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 a desire to kind of find their own patch of land and become a kind of sort of peasant proprietor class. Uh, and that was the freedom they wanted. They wanted to be free from the plantation and everything that it represented. Uh, but the kind of freedom that Victorian liberals prized was a freedom to participate in a wage economy, uh, a freedom to participate in a, a very particular kind of economic life devoted to uh, prudence and saving uh, and, and um, you know, very gradual, the, the kind of very gradual uh, accumulation of property. Um, it was a very different vision of what freedom meant. Uh, and I think you can see that disjuncture between what enslaved people wanted and what the leaders of the British anti-slavery movement wanted uh, throughout the history of British anti-slavery. And it, it's, it's one of the themes that I try to emphasize a lot in the book. Okay, well, I think you succeed with it. It's called Slave Empire, How Slavery Built Modern Britain. It's published in hardback by Robinson and costs £25 sterling, so about €28. The author is Podrick X. Scanlon. And Podrick, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks very much for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book provides an illuminating and unique analysis of the political rivalry between all the major parties during Ireland's revolutionary years. 
Politicians, propagandists and their voluntary supporters instigated forceful election campaigns to promote ideologies and influence the minds of voters. The goal was victory at the ballot box during the by-elections, general elections and local government elections of this era. The book is called Electioneering and Propaganda in Ireland, 1917 to 1921, Votes, Violence and Victory. It's published in hardback by Four Courts Press and costs €45. The author is Elaine Callanan and Elaine, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you very much indeed. So can we first of all begin with who were these parties and how were candidates selected? Because as you showed, there was quite a few elections between the by-elections, general elections and local elections. Yeah, the parties, well, the main political parties of the time were the Irish Parliamentary Party, uh, Sinn Féin, Unionists and Labour. And they ran uh, mostly throughout all of the elections in this era, but primarily the 1918 general election. The Irish Parliamentary Party were not successful in that election, so they come in as nationalists really for the rest of the elections in 1920 and 1921. But they all selected their candidates in in various different ways. Uh, The Irish Parliamentary Party... um, well, they had their candidates selected by the United Irish League. So it was done through very local associations. And the Irish Parliamentary Party themselves didn't really have much uh, voice in how the candidates were selected. Sinn Féin, on the other hand, was they also used a sort of local selection once they became, uh, once they evolved as a political party. Um, you know, we're very similar in terms of the Irish Parliamentary Party, but their candidates were ratified by their standing committee at the top level. Unionists uh, used their unionist associations to select candidates. But again, much like Sinn Féin, they kept a watchful eye over the candidates that were selected. So really, uh, Sinn Féin and unionists watched over candidate selection, but the Irish Parliamentary Party didn't have as much voice in terms of their leadership and how the candidates were selected. Labour were a little bit more disjointed because uh, their focus was really on trade unions. Uh, But, you know, centrally, uh, they did keep an eye out for potential candidates, but they they never really selected candidates in the end of the day because they withdrew from the election. And can we talk about how they went about running these campaigns? Did they have a kind of a propaganda element? Uh, Did they have a public relations element? Did the parties have similar tactics or did some of them try different methods? Uh, Well, they all, uh, and I'm going to talk about the Irish Parliamentary Party Unionists in Sinn Féin because I said Labour have withdrawn at this stage. And all three main parties uh, had very strong propaganda or public relations, as we call it in the modern era, activities. Uh, The ones that were probably the most successful were Sinn Féin and Unionists. Um, The Irish Parliamentary Party did use propaganda, such as posters and handbills, but they uh, focused more on public meetings and on the canvas. Sinn Féin used everything. Uh, They used posters and handbills, and as did Unionists. But they also focused um, on presence by decorating towns and villages in their colours. Now, both Sinn Féin and Unionists were very good at this, albeit with different colours. Sinn Féin were, you know, the the green, white and orange of the tricolour and unionists were the red, white and blue of the union flag. And they would have used pin badges and other novel techniques to to, to promote themselves during all of these elections. Uh, An interesting one by by Sinn Féin in 1918 was that they changed the registration on cars for a number of reasons, but one of them was for propaganda and they uh, made the registration EOR 1916, as in Easter Rising 1916. 
But all of the parties used a wide array of propaganda during this time to to promote uh, what they wanted to get across to potential voters. And it's interesting the way you mention Eeyore 1916 there. I was wondering how much did big national events like the Easter Rising or the War of Independence feature in in some of these campaigns and in the literature and how much did global events like the First World War, Versailles or, or, or things like that? A huge amount. Um, I'll start with the, with the World War first of all because the, the Great War would have influenced propaganda on, on any number of levels including how propaganda itself was done. Um, it, it was in the era of, uh, you know, the, the Great War introduced an era of mass mobilization and also, you know, mass aiming at, at populations to try and gain support. And political parties picked up on this, including Irish political parties eventually as well. So this, um, this, this, this aiming of propaganda at a mass audience uh, by using things like a, a wide array of posters, by using uh, national press and local press, by using big public speeches, um, was widely used and borrowed really from some of even the recruitment campaigns of the Great War. Now, uh, political parties wouldn't have had the finances of the War Office to create the great big colourful posters uh, for recruitment, but they would have used, um, you know, perhaps you know more moderate and probably uh, flimsier posters. But they would have used them widely uh, throughout the country to try and gain votes. The Easter Rising had an influence, but more in terms of Sinn Féin and in using it in their selection of candidates. Um, a lot of the candidates selected in 1918 particularly would have been involved in the, in the Easter Rising. And certainly if they weren't involved in the Easter Rising, they would have been known for their separatist um, ideologies. Now, you know, in all of these elections, Sinn Féin walked a tightrope, really, of, um, you, know, you know, stepping away, really, from the violence of the, of the Easter Rising and trying to encourage people to cast their votes um, rather than resort to violence. So um, that would have proved a bit of a difficulty. And, of course, then jumping into all of this were unionists and the Irish Parliamentary Party that vilified uh, Sinn Féin because of the violence of 1916, uh, often calling them the party of violence and intimidation. But unionists themselves would also, uh, throughout you know, 1918 and 1921, have um, you know, looked back upon the contribution of all unionists in the Great War, um, particularly, obviously, those that, uh, that fought in the Great War, but they would also have looked at the contribution of unionists in terms of what was supplied, like the shipbuilding, the linen, all of those kind of things that were supplied to aid the empire in the Great War, uh, alluding to the fact that they were part of Britain and part of the, the Union and part of the empire. So all of these things played a huge role in um, in the propaganda of uh, politics during this time. So when we look at the elections then, who were the winners and who were the losers? And what were the things that worked and didn't work? Um, well, of course, one of the main things that worked very well during this time was, that, was the, the public speech or the political public speech. And every single party did this. Uh, they drew huge crowds back in this time. And that was you know, largely because it was a form of entertainment as well as a form of politics. They could also be violent at times uh, because when one political side held a meeting in the same vicinity as another, there was um, incidents between the two, and that was largely actually between competing national sides. 
where often the Irish volunteers would deliberately heckle uh, an IPP candidate at a public meeting and vice versa. And this sometimes caused violence uh, between the volunteers and between uh, the Hibernians. But the canvas was also very important um, during all of these elections. And bear in mind that in 1921, it was really elections for the Northern Parliament as uh, no election took place for the Southern Parliament. So door-to-door canvassing um, by um, candidates, by the Irish volunteers and coming the man for Sinn Féin were particularly uh, important during these times. And here we see big involvement of the youth and young people. Um, it, the canvas was particularly useful for swaying uh, onshore voters or changing the minds of voters. And for Sinn Féin, they were new on the scene. They were the unknown. So the canvas would have been particularly important. Now, unionists also used the canvas particularly well, and they really emphasised using the canvas, uh, particularly in 1921. And that was to ensure that all unionists turned up at the polling stations and cast in favour uh, of their candidates. So um, all of this was really important, um, as were then, you know, poster campaigns. I mean, we're all very familiar with Sinn Féin's Put Him In To Get Him Out poster during the 1918 general election. And we're very familiar with the colours that were used by, by all the political parties. But partition, of course, becomes the main issue by 1921. Um, and we're coming up to all of that now as we move into the, the, the 100 years anniversary of all of this. And we see unionists supporting the creation of the new Northern Parliament. And we see nationalists not supporting that and uh, looking you know, to, to avoid partition where possible. But in the end of the day, uh, the big winners, um, depending on the elections that you look at, in 1918, it was definitely Sinn Féin. Um, they did very well. Now, we have to remember that they were using the first to pass the post voting system, uh, which changed in 1920 to proportional representation. But the IPP lost out very badly in 1918, but they did achieve 200,000 votes. Um, now, given that it was a winner-takes-all election, that meant that they won nothing. Um, had there been proportional representation, that might have been slightly different. And unionists were won out in Ulster, um, and particularly in those counties that later went on to form Northern Ireland. Um, so, uh, you know, as I often tell my students in, in Carla College St. Patrick's, that there's winners and losers in all of these elections. Um, and, you know, it, it's how you look at them in connection from one to the next to the next that shows that, you know, the Irish Parliamentary Party, while they lost out hugely in 1918, they're not really defeated in the local elections. They still run candidates, albeit under the nationalist name. And by uh, 1921, um, they are kind of gone uh, nearly at that stage. Uh, but you still have the likes of Joseph Devlin um, in Ulster at the time. Well, it's a brilliant book, Elaine, and uh, I think it shows that uh, some things change a lot and some things stay very much uh, the same and political campaigns and everything that goes into them. There are some consistencies, no matter when it is. You're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, even if you look back on, on this time and you step down out of the high ideals of home rule union or independence, in the end of the day, they start talking about things like old age pension, housing. 100 years ago, they were talking about the same issues in housing as we're talking about today and taxation. So you're absolutely right. <laughs> OK, well, it's a wonderful book. Electioneering and Propaganda in Ireland, 1917 to 1921, Votes, Violence and Victory, published in hardback by Four Courts Press. The author, Elaine Callanan. And Elaine, thanks so much for joining us. 
Thank you very much indeed, Patrick. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. One summer's night in 1946, over 1,000 European Jews waited silently on an Italian beach to board a secret ship. They had survived concentration camps, hidden and fought in forests and endured death marches. Now they were taking on the Royal Navy, running the British blockade of Palestine. From Eastern Europe to Israel via Germany and Italy, Rosie Whitehouse follows in the footsteps of those secret passengers, uncovering their extraordinary stories, some told for the first time. The book is called The People on the Beach, Journeys to Freedom After the Holocaust. It's published in hardback by Seahurst and Company Publishers and costs £20 sterling, so about €22. The author is Rosie Whitehouse. And Rosie, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Hello, good evening. It's an extraordinary story because we have books on the Holocaust and we have books on the birth of the State of Israel. But your work connects the two because it shows how those survivors got to Israel. Yes, it does. And actually... um it was a question I kept asking myself in the in the years that I was researching the story is that why has nobody else written this book? Because when I first discovered the newspaper clipping which described um, how the Holocaust survivors came to this beach on the Italian Riviera, I imagined myself that I would go home and I would go on Amazon and I would buy with one click a book which explained to me how they got there. Um, the last thing I expected was that I would have to write one. And I think that it's it's very interesting why this story has, has been forgotten and you could say to a certain extent brushed under the carpet. I think we can develop that in a minute, but I think one of the things to say first is that this, I actually discovered that there was actually a unique window of opportunity that I had in order to discover who those 1,300 Holocaust survivors were because many of them are still alive, although they're very old, but I was also had the opportunity to search for them and search for their families and their connections on social media, which if I tried to write this book 10 years ago, I would never have been able to do. So I think that uh, that that's actually one of the key reasons that, that this book hadn't been written before, that people just did not have the capability of finding out who these people were. And many of these stories are desperately moving. How were you able to retrace their steps? Um, well, basically, I, I, I quite simply, I, I got in my car and I drove the route that the people took out of, out of Europe. And uh, my account of what happened to them is not just a historical account. It's also a contemporary account of how those people and the events of that period are remembered in Eastern Europe, in Germany and, and in Italy itself. And uh, so, yes, I, I was able, as I said, to connect with the, the, the survivors and find their stories firstly through social media and through incredible resources uh, which exist, at, for example, at the U.S. Shoah uh, Foundation, where they have recorded lots and lots of interviews with people. So I sat and was able to listen to testaments which were given uh, by people who had died 10 or 15 years ago, which... Uh, uh, which was an extraordinary experience and a very frustrating one, I must say, for a journalist because you can't interrupt a, a, a pre-recorded testament and, and ask your own questions. And we get a new perspective on why these people wanted to leave Europe and, and start a new life because many just didn't feel safe remaining in Europe. I think this is really important and I think it's very important um, to to actually make this clear that um, that the Jews who were who were fl- uh, fleeing Eastern Europe were not just fleeing because there had been the most atrocious genocide um, of the people of the Jews who lived in Eastern Europe. They were also fleeing um, from Stalinism, which was 
diametrically opposed to Jewish life and any kind of, of Zionist vocation. And they fled out of desperation. Those Jews who, who were living in, in Eastern Europe, they began to, uh, to move out of Eastern Europe the moment they were liberated by by the Red Army, as early as February 1944. This is even before uh, the Germans had moved into Hungary and it began uh, the mass murder of Hungarian Jewry. So these people were moving through an extremely dangerous war zone. These were desperate people. They were very far from the way some people would like to portray them as uh, British colonialists who were who were being encouraged by the British to uh, to settle uh, in the Palestine mandate. That was absolutely not the case. You also have some brilliant stories of, of who these people were, and uh, some of them had some very dramatic stories and some very dramatic people. Yes, I think the really important thing that we have to remember is often when uh, we look um, at and we think about Holocaust survivors, we have, we have these images which come from popular culture. Um, and... They show survivors often as weak people, downtrodden, unable to fend for themselves. But these people who were who were leaving Eastern Europe were people of dramatic agency. But the thing I found most interesting about them is that they were they're also um, real people. They're, they're still alive, and they have um, they have processed this trauma themselves in in many different ways. And you know, one of the one of the most interesting gentlemen that I met. Uh, I mean, everyone I met was fascinating, but. He was interesting because he came from Thessalonica, from what is uh, what had been the great Sephardi community of Europe. Uh, Thessalonica in northern Greece was known as Little Jerusalem. And there people had their own unique culture and they spoke Ladino, a language which has almost died out. And uh, when I met him at his home just south of Tel Aviv, he actually sang to me in Ladino the poems that he had written about his sister who was murdered in Auschwitz. And finally, Rosie, why do you think this part of the story has been brushed under the carpet for so long? Well, I think that um, I think that it, it has a number of there are a number of aspects of it. One is uh, that uh, Eastern Europe went into a Stalinist deep freeze, um, and it's taken some time for people to begin to come out to actually come out as Jewish, those people who remained in, in Eastern Europe. And uh, that wasn't a process that happened immediately in the, in, in the early 1990s. It, it, is, it is still ongoing. So we're actually living with the legacy of communism, but we're also living with the legacy of the Cold War in, in a number of other ways, because um, after the war, um, the West tried to portray the, the horrors of Nazi Germany in, in a way that they could they could mirror those uh, those images of what was going wrong under under Stalinism in Russia, and that didn't in that case they didn't want to single out stories and to say ah oh, it was the Jews who suffered. It was a long time before before that story actually became part of popular culture. It's very difficult to believe that now when uh, we have uh, Schindler's List and we have uh, we have lots of novels and things all set in the Holocaust. So it was actually a story that nobody talked about for decades. There were also reasons that people didn't want to talk about what happened after the war. Firstly, many of the American troops in the occupied uh, zone of, uh, of Bavaria were extremely anti-Semitic, even General Patton himself. And uh, these were the World War II heroes who uh, everybody wanted to to say were magnificent and heroic and that we should all be proud of them. But in fact, 
people like Patton weren't necessarily particularly nice characters, and that's not exactly a story that I think Americans wanted to remember. And then I think, finally, one of the big reasons that this story wasn't told is that this was a rescue of Jews by Jews. And unfortunately, that did not come to an end after the founding of the State of Israel. Uh, the organizations and the underground that, uh, that set out to rescue the Jews went on to rescue Jews from Arab lands, and they went on to, uh, to assist Soviet Jewry. So this, was, this is a story which, unfortunately, has yet to come to an end. It's just that the way that, uh, that the underground movements like this operate has changed, and uh, now uh, I can tell the story of what happened after the Second World War because things no longer operate in that fashion. Okay, well, the book is called The People on the Beach, Journeys to Freedom After the Holocaust. It's published in hardback by Seahurst and Company Publishers and costs about €22. The author, Rosie Whitehouse. And Rosie, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book is an absorbing, comprehensive and insightful exploration of County Leitrim during the Irish Revolution and it explores the social, political, cultural and military developments from the introduction of the ill-fated Third Home Rule Bill in 1912 through the First World War, the Irish War of Independence and the Civil War and it's a compelling account of the Irish Revolution in a so-called quiet county. The book is called Leitrim, the Irish Revolution 1912-23. to It's published in paperback by Four Courts Press and costs €24.95. The author is Patrick McGarty. And Patrick, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you, Patrick. Let's begin with that uh, description of, of Leitrim as a quiet county. I think what your work shows is that there are different ways of assessing activity and that it's not just overt violence and that when you look at uh, things like boycotting and intimidation that you can get a very different profile of activity. Absolutely, Patrick. Um, I suppose historians have placed increased emphasis on what we would call overt political violence, but I think the book uh, highlights maybe other forms of resistance uh, at the particular time, boycott, intimidation, civil disobedience, the whole lot, which played a prominent role in the Irish Revolution from 1912 all the way to 1923. Let's look at then some of the the significant points and I suppose let's go with the First World War and it's interesting to see that the the, the MPs at the time for Leitrim from the Irish party, uh, they were strong recruiters for the war effort. Absolutely, they were unique in many ways um, when we look at maybe some of their their part of the Irish party, their their parliamentary colleagues, um, Francis Meehan from Manor Hamilton and Thomas Smith from Mohill certainly um, had no problem with standing on recruitment platforms around the county. That wasn't the same across Ireland. So they were they were uh, major uh, recruiters for the war effort, and that came against them uh, later on when we look at the, at the 1918 election. Sinn Féin uh, accused them uh, directly, uh, you know, um, about their activities, you know, in in uh, promoting uh, recruitment for the war effort, which yes, their position was very very unique. Uh, you know, they were back in uh, um, Redmond. You know, their 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 leader, but you know, compared to as I say, their their colleagues, um, you know, they were fervent recruiters for the war effort between 1914 and 1918. 
And now let's look at the 1916 Rising. Sean McDermott, one of the leaders, was, of course, from Leitrim. And I wonder, did that have an effect on how people viewed the Rising? Well, initially in Leitrim, um, you know, there was condemnation of the Rising. Uh, you know, and it wasn't until, you know, increased repression nationwide, um, you know, that, you know, people's opinions started to turn, you know, after the executions and that. But when we look at the likes of Sean McDermott, uh, who, you know, who was from Kilty Clotter in North Eastham and himself and uh, Countess Markovitz from nearby uh, Sligo, again, their, their role in the um, 1916 Rising, you know, received very, very little uh, newspaper coverage um, in the county uh, at the time. Um, you know, so certainly their activities and those of the, the Easter uh, rebels were uh, condemned from pulpits and across county councils and district councils at the time. And public opinion started to change, obviously, you know, when, you know, the after the executions and arrests around the country and the county and Again, around Leitrim, you know, Crown Forces, they, they were involved in pilfering, especially around the town of Manor Hamilton. And again, slowly but surely, public opinion changed. And obviously, the, uh, you know, as the summer went on, as the summer of 1916 went on, and uh, we find uh, that public opinion was changing. The dominant discourse was no longer condemnation of the, um, of the Easter rebels. So we we witness uh, quite a bit of uh, public opinion uh, in favour of the rebels as the year 1916 progressed. Now, there were also some significant ambushes during the War of Independence. Can we talk about the the Shemore ambush and and also the award that was given to Alice Gray uh, by the British for uh, for her contribution? Yeah, the Shemore ambush was, um, I suppose, it was the first engagement the member of the Crown Forces was killed uh, in Leitrim. It happened on the 14th of March, uh, 1921, when one of the two South Leitrim Brigade, the IRA, one of their flying columns, ambushed uh, a group of soldiers from the Bedfordshire and Hertfordshire Regiment. Um, the regiment itself, was, there were obviously it was a set up in many ways, really, because the regiment went out to search worshippers at a church. Um, it was a Friday morning. It was the first Friday of the month. And the word went around that IRA men would be at a mass out in the church in Gowell on the return journey back into Carrick and Shannon, the Bedfordshire and Hertfordshire Regiment, along with members of the RIC, were ambushed. Um, at Shemore. And what happened was one of the, the regiment was, was killed, a Lieutenant Wilson. Um, the flying column kept the troops under fairly intense gunfire. But what happened was um, one of the party was a nurse, a nurse Alice Gray. She was from Dublin. She was a 55-year-old army searcher. Um, again, army searchers were employed uh, to search members of Common Amon who were obviously suspected of of carrying arms and ammunition and messages and that. So this woman went along when the shooting started and Lieutenant Wilson was, was wounded along with 
three members of the RIC. She went, she tended their wounds. She went along and carried weapons to some of the, the, the patrol who obviously were behind a wall, got out of the lorries very, very quickly, but didn't bring their weapons with them. And she, she brought revolvers and rifles to the contingent that were behind uh, a, a wall. Uh, as a result of that, she um, obviously saved lives. There's no doubt about that. Um, the patrol, at the end of the day, um, uh, evaded the the gunfire of the um, of the uh, of the flying column. The flying column eventually retreated. Um, Alice Gray continued to tend the wounds of the soldiers, and they proceeded in then to Carrick and Shannon. Um, and what happened was, uh, I suppose, if, if we look at uh, five afterwards, we find that the uh, she she got an OBE for her actions. Uh, and at the time, um, again, her, her actions obviously were very very important in the propaganda war. And again, the publicity that emanated from that. Again, the British authorities um, made sure to. They would go along and highlight that it was a brave Irish woman, emphasise Irish woman. Uh, that's the, uh, the type of message that was coming across uh, in media at the time. So Alice Gray, again, she, it was a fairly unique uh, incident, really, when you go along and look at the fact that uh, this woman was awarded the OBE for her actions at that ambush in Leitrim. Okay, and the book also shows then uh, the level of violence during the Civil War and a number of controversial killings in Leitrim. Uh, all contained in this new book, Leitrim, The Irish Revolution, 1912 to 23. It's published in paperback by Four Courts Press and costs €24.95. The author is Patrick McGarty. And Patrick, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Patrick. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. From paddy wagon to rush hour, New York City has given us a number of our popular words and phrases, along the way fashioning a recognisable dialect all of its own. Often imitated and sometimes ridiculed, New York English has its own identity, imbued with the rich cultural history of, as New Yorkers tell it, the greatest city in the world. So how did this unique language community develop and how has it shaped the city as we know it today? Well, all of this and more is explored in a brilliant new book, You Talking to Me? The Unruly History of New York English. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press and costs fourteen ninety nine sterling, so about seventeen euro. The author is E. J. White, and Elsie, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And of course, we have to start with the Irish connection because um, many of uh, the words that are and the phrases that are being discussed here came to New York via Irish immigrants. Yes, yeah, so the Irish have always been a particularly visible immigrant community in New York City, um, not just because they're one of the three major immigrant groups that have really helped to shape New York's sense of identity, um, along with Italian immigrants and Irish immigrants, but also because they established themselves early on in local institutions that included the police force and city hall, um, not to mention contributing a, a good deal of rogues to the city's underworld. So, for instance, in 1855, Irish immigrants, not the children of Irish immigrants, but Irish immigrants themselves made up 27% of the New York City Municipal Police Force. So, uh, as you can imagine, a lot of slang comes from the underworld and also from the world of policing. 
Um, the police come up with slang in order to describe what criminals are doing. Criminals come up with slang to describe what they themselves are doing. Uh, onlookers are trying to come up with ways to describe how to survive uh, in a city that has um, all of these elements going on. Uh, can you recognize a scam and then uh, name it and get out of being scammed yourself? So, for instance, um, Underworld slang branded police officers as Paddy and Seamus. Those are uh, presumably because those were Irish names. Um, when you were transporting prisoners, you would do it in a paddy wagon. And I can't really tell whether that term was meant to refer to the police officers driving it or the um, uh, people inside. Uh, a roadway might be an Irishman's sidewalk, um, probably to describe, uh, this is going to be a little anti-Irish, but probably to describe the drunken way that you might veer off the sidewalk. And uh, paving stones underfoot had the nickname Irish Confetti because especially in the 1840s and 1850s, there were a lot of riots in New York City. And uh, those riots uh, took bodies, um, both from uh, Irish people who were furious about the famine and trying to find ways to make a point about it, and anti-immigrant groups who were furious that the Irish were coming over in the first place. And, uh, and, and Irish speakers contributed uh, a lot of underworld slang. Now, there's always a perception that uh, New Yorkers are rude. You challenge that. Are they being rude? There are two major ways to be polite. And one way to be polite is to give people space. And the other way to be polite is to embrace people. And whether what you're doing in conversation with someone is polite or not really depends on whether the community that you're a part of places the emphasis on embracing people or giving people space. In a lot of places in the United States, there's an emphasis on giving people space. And uh, that's also the case in uh, Britain, for example. Americans would describe British people as more reticent. In New York, though, there's an emphasis on embracing people. And that means that New Yorkers do a lot of things while they're being polite that outsiders would interpret as quite rude. So really, if you want to know whether someone is being New York nice, whether someone is being polite in that special New York way, you have to say, um, is the speaker animated? Are they asking you rapid fire questions? Are they interrupting you? Are they making small talk in the form of complaining, thereby uh, inviting you into the good fight against the world? Um, are they disagreeing with you? Uh, in a lighthearted way. Uh, all of these things are things that make outsiders think that New Yorkers are abrasive and argumentative, but actually they're just ways of embracing you, letting you into the conversation, all right, siding uh, themselves with you in, that, uh, in the good fight. Is it true that C-3PO in Star Wars was originally meant to have a New York accent? He and R2-D2 were originally written to be, um, in the script's words, uh, sort of like Bronx used car dealers. Uh, in early scripts, you could see the two of them, both of them talk, they're arguing with each other in a way that you would expect sort of low New York comic characters to argue with each other. Uh, there's a line that made it into the uh, actual film that's something like, uh, 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 I'm C-3PO, I can't do an accent. Uh, C-3PO, human-cyborg relations. Your kindness is greatly appreciated. Uh, but in the original, it was more like, uh, hey, I'm C-3PO, human-cyborg relations. Your kindness is greatly appreciated. It was more of a sarcastic line. Ultimately, when they did the script reading, there was a British actor named Anthony Daniels who decided not to use a New York accent, but just to read it as himself. He came out sounding like a British butler. Uh, George Lucas, uh, in one of the 
best decisions that he made as uh, as a movie producer uh, let him keep the uh, let him keep the butler shtick. And a West Side Story was originally going to be East Side Story. Was originally going to be East Side Story and to take up uh, and to take up conflicts between Catholics and Jewish people during the period that uh, included Passover. Um, during later passes over the over the book of the musical, they decided to switch over to an emphasis on Puerto Rican immigrants because that was the more visible new immigrant community as opposed to uh, Jewish immigrants or Irish Catholics. And the book also shows how, for a time, it looked like New York City English could could have become the standard dialect of the United States. In most countries, the language that you learn when you go to college and learn to speak without an accent, the language that uh, that news readers use, uh, the language that you hear over the radio, uh, comes from the center of culture and power and finance. So in England, uh, you would hear received pronunciation over the airwaves which was an imitation of speech in the triangle between London and Oxford and Cambridge. In France, you would hear Parisian French. In Germany, you would hear the accent of the, normal, of the northern industrial centers. Uh, up until about the 1930s, 1940s, the United States was on track to be like that, which is to say that uh, if things had worked out in the United States as they worked out almost everywhere else, we all ought to be talking like New Yorkers. Uh, however, uh, during the late 1930s, early 1940s, a lot of shifts took place in the fields of education and in the uh, new um, industry of radio. With a set of complicated historical forces that could be summed up by anti-Semitism. Uh, Americans did not want to sound like they came from New York because New Yorkers were uh, New Yorkers were Jewish people, they were Italian people, they were Irish people. Uh, they were they belonged to groups that were racialized back then as non-whites. So Americans decided um, that they were going to start sounding in Ivy League schools the way that people sound in the Midwest, uh, where people have names like uh, Johnson and Olson. Uh, they thought it would make them sound more American to talk more like they were from the provinces rather than from the city centers. Elsie, it's absolutely fascinating and it's a story you tell so well in the book. It's called You Talking to Me? The Unruly History of New York English. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press. Costs about €17. The author, E.J. White. And Elsie, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cattle, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll be telling the history of world trade through maps, discussing art, Ireland and the diaspora, and investigating murder, mystery and post-traumatic stress in ancient Rome. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night. Talking History on News Talk.